inflation base effect is still running above the, the threshold. So I suspect that the market is looking for 50 basis points in August, but that should be about it, at least um, uh, depending on what happens with the, with the global economy. And it looks like the Indian government is going to get quite a nice boost to its revenues, isn't it? It's auctioning off uh, the 5G uh, spectrum, could raise maybe as much as 14 billion US dollars from that. Oh yeah, at least I think it's been a, it's been a, a, an excellent auction so far. I think it's completed yesterday, but uh, you know you saw all the big players, Reliance, uh, Adani, I'm oh, sorry, Adani came in, which is new for them, Bardi Airtel and Vodafone, all very keen to buy uh, all of the um, bandwidth that's available on the 5G. And the, uh, the good news on that is for India, the rollout will be quite quick, so it's not just a, a, an auction and then long term a rollout of 5G. It's uh, it's on the way, yeah, probably third fourth quarter here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, very exciting, I think, and again, a reflection of the opportunity that exists structurally in India over the medium term. Toby, thanks very much. Have a good weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look at Asia-Pacific markets. In Australia, the SX200 moving further ahead now. It's up about 1.2%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about a third of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea up close to 1%. Does look like uh, a flat open, though, for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, it's back chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast, mainly fine and very hot. Maximum temperature, 35 degrees in the urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. And the outlook is for it to remain very hot. A few isolated showers in the next couple of days. The very hot weather warning is still in force. 31 degrees already and it's 81% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Xinhua reports that President Xi Jinping warned his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden against playing with fire during a phone call last night in which they discussed China-U.S. relations and issues of mutual interest. According to Xinhua, Mr. Xi stressed that China firmly opposes both any form of secession directed towards Taiwan independence and external interference in China's affairs. The virtual summit between the leaders lasted more than two hours and was described by both sides as candid. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre updated reporters. They had a very direct conversation and they've known each other for some time. The president has known, President Biden has known President Xi for about four decades. This is a relationship that they've had for some time. And again, it was a direct, straightforward uh, conversation. This is something you hear from the president all the time and the importance of having leader to leader conversation. At least two dancers were hurt during a concert by the popular boy band Mirror last night after a large video panel fell on stage at the Hong Kong Coliseum. Authorities said two male dancers had been, t- had been taken to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, where one was in a serious condition and the other stable. Videos circulating on social media appear to show the panel first landing sideways on one of the dancers' head before toppling over and trapping another dancer. The government immediately suspended the eight remaining shows in what was meant to be a 12-concert series. Other dancers were reported to have suffered injuries during rehearsals earlier in the week. Chief Executive John Lee released a statement expressing shock at the incident, along with hopes that the victims will recover quickly. This concert-goer, named Ivana, said she and her friends felt scared. After we saw the TV fell and 
Apparently, the dancer has passed out. The people were screaming, and the staff tells the fans to leave. Me and my friends feeling was scared and worried, because we didn't expect such serious accident will happen in this concert. Overseas now, Ukrainian officials say at least five people have been killed by Russian missile strikes in the central region of Kirovgrad. More than two dozen others were wounded in the attack, which struck hangars at an airfield. Further south, the Ukrainians are reported to be making progress in their counteroffensive against the occupied city of Kherson. A local resident said military activity had gotten more intense over the past weeks. I can hear a lot more anti-air missiles being shot by the Russian forces. We can see uh, a lot of Russian troops moving through the city. The concern that we have is about the Russians withdrawing from Kherson, going uh, to the left bank and starting shooting at us. The news from RTHK. Chat with me, Andrew Work, and Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice. Good morning, Andrew. Today is July 29th, and today we'll discuss uh, a really heavy issue. We're discussing the debate over euthanasia in light of a tragic case that has come up recently in a Hong Kong court. A retired 59-year-old man has been convicted of manslaughter for killing his terminally ill wife who's stricken with cancer. He admitted the crime, saying he wanted to end her suffering. Prosecutors agreed to reduce the charge from murder to manslaughter. There's more details, and we'll get into it. Euthanasia is illegal in Hong Kong, but some countries, such as the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Canada, now allow some form of the practice under strict conditions. What do you think? Is there a case for mercy killing, doctor-assisted suicide, or is the danger of abuse too high? After 9.15, we'll look at organic vegetables sold in Hong Kong. Are they as safe as you think? Hit us with your thoughts, your questions, and your comments on our Facebook page, Backchat at RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us at 2338-8266. All right, so for today's show, we have uh, three guests, uh, two to start. One will be joining us soon. First in our studios, we'd like to welcome Lee Han Lam, who is the Emeritus Professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong's Department of Philosophy. Good morning, Professor Lee. Good morning. Good morning. Um, on the line, we have Dr. Derek Au, who is a director at the CUHK Center for Bioethics. Good morning, Dr. Au. Good morning. Okay. Um, gentlemen, this is a really sad case of this, this uh, retired gentleman. His wife was 54 years old, cancer, and he, uh, I, I guess she was paralyzed, blind. Medication was not going to make a difference. Uh, doctors told him that she really didn't have much time to leave. She had repeatedly asked to be allowed to die. So one night he lit the charcoal uh, in, in a sealed room until uh, she expired, and then he called the paramedics and uh, turned himself in. Um, tragic, tragic case. Uh, Lehan Lam, I'll, I'll let you start off. Uh, he has since gone public saying that Hong Kong should allow uh, assisted suicide or mercy killings. Uh, let's get your first take on the issue. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, um, i like to start by saying that um, there are many deep, controversial ethical issues. And in, in one way, you know, what we're dealing with today is also controversial. However, it's not a very difficult or deep issue. I think uh, if several conditions are fulfilled, for example, if the patient is terminally ill, meaning 
less than six months to live and suffering unbearable pain. And furthermore, if he or she is competent and he's insistent in, in dying, then I think the law should be such that this kind of assisted suicide or mercy killing should be allowed. Right. I, I know in some of the other places they have a process in place where they do have people to determine whether or not they are mentally competent and then counselors to work through the issues uh, with them. Does, does Hong Kong have the capacity even to uh, you know, undertake this type of pro a process if they chose to, to legalize assisted suicide? Yeah, I think uh, you know, you, you know, Hong Kong hasn't started it. I believe, mm -hmm. and uh, if we were to start it, I, I believe this kind of process is important. Mm -hmm. We don't want to push people to die because we don't want to save public money on, mm -hmm. on saving them. Right, and I mean, in, in this situation, I mean, there's, there's a difference between an assisted suicide, a mercy killing, and I mean, these, these, are, these are different things. Can you outline the different options and, and sure. what the difference is? Sure. Um, Physician assisted suicide or medical, uh, medically assisted suicide, uh, in this case, um, the patient take the final step. Uh, I mean, it's a patient who finally decides to take a lethal pill. And in one case in Oregon, only one out of 10 patients who were determined to, you know, that he or she is qualified to die, actually took that final step. In the case of euthanasia, mm. It's the doctor who do the, you know, give the, doctor, the injection. Yeah. 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 So that's a slight difference. Okay. But, but in some cases, if, if, uh, if, if the patient is, a, you know, is an 18-month-old <laughs> baby, right. Right, then only euthanasia can be, can be done. Okay, so, so these are different cases. Dr. Derek Au is with us. He's at the CUHK Center for Bioethics. Uh, I mean, we've had this outline. What, can we get your first take on, the, on this, this issue? Presumably you've been looking at it for some time, and you, you are a specialist in geriatrics. So, Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, I've actually uh, stepped down as the director of the center from March, so now I'm the, direct, uh, I'm the advisor of the center. It's actually uh, Professor Lee is also uh, an honorary advisor of the center. Um, I, I I think my uh, basic thinking is that uh, as a physician, we are part of a professional community. Uh, so it it is uh, difficult for physicians to to talk about these issues sort of in a vacuum. Uh, for instance, the uh, World Medical Association uh, in this uh, 2019 uh, declaration, I think, was in, uh, in Georgia in the General Assembly. Uh, it states quite clearly that it reiterates the strong commitment to the principles of uh, ethics and utmost respect to be maintained for human life, and therefore is firmly opposed to euthanasia and decision-assisted suicide. Now, the WMA is uh, signed by uh, uh, China and also the Medical Association in Hong Kong, so uh, we are all part of that medical professional community. So I think we started off with professional duties. Uh, and then consider what we can do to help uh, end-of-life uh, patients uh, uh, rather than starting with the uh, generic question of uh, whether we should legalize the process. Okay, so I mean, these are two very different takes. And I mean, I, I you know, personally, I come to these things from the, the, uh, the question of property rights with the assumption that the ultimate property is the property of your body and you should have uh, domain over it. 
Uh, does that play into the way that the two of you look at this from a philosophical issue? Do, do you start from a, a, a first principle of property rights and the body is the first property that you have? Yep, sure, Dr. Professor. Um, well, yeah. Um, I think in the, in the literature, uh, the idea of property rights doesn't figure so prominently on this particular issue, but I, I believe the idea behind is the same, uh, namely that who should have the right to decide for me? If mm-hmm. I'm competent, if I'm in unbearable pain and suffering, and if I'm terminally ill, there's no hope that I will recover. Right. So who should be in a better position to decide other than myself, uh, right. provided that I'm competent? Yeah. So, so, so even though the idea of property right is not spelled out, but yeah, I agree with you that you know, behind it is uh, you know, I, I'm the best person to make this decision for myself. Right. Uh, Derek, Dr. Dr. Al, do, do you start with that, that starting point of, of the yes, property right in your body as the first property you want? Concerning the issue, rather than concerning the issue as property right, I think uh, people tend to discuss or debate on uh, with the concept of autonomy and sovereignty. Uh, sure. So we, as Professor Lee uh, said, uh, we are, um, uh, as competent adults, uh, we are autonomous beings. Uh, so so the argument for uh, euthanasia would be that uh, people should have uh, that autonomy and uh, to control their own body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I just like to point out that uh, if you start with the position of control and right uh, uh, over one's uh, sovereignty or autonomy, uh, then you are leading to the direction of so-called the right to die, uh, which is broader than uh, what we started talking about assisted suicide for really terminal suffering uh, patients, which is quite a narrow scope uh, with some medical uh, background indications. So so I just want to point out that starting with the right to die as a premise for discussion is different uh, from starting uh, with uh, uh, the, the need to help uh, end-of-life people uh, to reduce uh, their suffering. Gotcha. We're, we're also welcomed on the line now by Alex Lam, who is the chairman of the Hong Kong Patients Voices, uh, a solicitor as well. Uh, good morning, Doctor. Uh, good morning, Mr. Lam. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, you know, we're having this discussion about autonomy and agency, and you're here as Patients Voices. What, what is the stance of your organization on this issue? Well, we, we actually don't have any stance on this issue because uh, remember five years ago I was invited to, to attend this, this uh, program. Uh, uh, on this topic. And uh, after that, uh, apparently, um, in the past 20 years, there seems not many people talk about this. I mean, this is a very serious um, and controversial uh, topic for people to discuss. And make it into law. We'll, uh, we'll expect you to have a discussion among the society for many years uh, before you can really take it to the uh, legislative council mm. for, for you know, approving a new law. Uh, we, we say, for example, in, in Australia, they have this um, discussion for many years before they can, you know, bring it to the, uh, um, the, the, the legislative, uh, legislature. And when they have a 6.6 million uh, population in Victoria, Australia, mm-hmm. and we have 7.7 million people in Hong Kong, it seems no one is um, uh, willing to talk about this. And so um, well, one, one of the, the incidents was uh, 20 years ago when the, a, um, a, a 20-year-old uh, Ko Ban Dai, he, he wrote a letter to then 
chief executive asking for uh, euthanasia on him because uh, he was uh, paralyzed. And there was some um, broad discussion among society, but after that, there has been a long silence in our society. So, so in, in this tragic case in court, that uh, we have this topic, we have this discussion again. I, I think this is a very serious and again, controversial discussion as to why and why not have uh, this uh, uh, process in Hong Kong. I think for, for some of the patients, I know some of the patients, they are paralyzed, they have difficulties in life, they, they have uh, all the, the, the painful experience in, in hospital or at home. Yes, they, they still live a life. But, uh, but for some other people, we, we don't know how uh, intolerable um, suffering they, they, they experience. Then, then we, I think we need to listen to them and listen to everyone. And we will expect a strong opposition or resistance from uh, certain groups like the religious uh, body, uh, medical profession, because under the, the current uh, core professional conduct doctors, uh, the, the, the primary principle for, for a doctor is to uh, do no harm. On, on patients, not to mention killing them or assisting them to, to, to end the life uh, of patients. So uh, I think we, we need to have uh, some years and years of discussion among our society before we have a stand. Right. So the, the, the in this particular case, it sparked the discussion we're having today. Uh, the gentleman said originally he was planning to commit suicide, but then decided not to turn himself in. It seems like he is trying to provoke that discussion because we do have a lot of cases in Hong Kong where, you know, you'll have an elderly couple that put the charcoal on it and, you know, have a double suicide yeah. because they just feel like they cannot carry on. Yeah. It's tragic. But I mean, yeah. um, is, is this is this how the conversation gets started by somebody saying, no, I'm, I'm going to tell people what I did, why I did it, and we need to change? Well, we, we, can, we can do some changing. Uh, in that case, it seems to be a, a um, uh, on one hand, it is a medical issue because uh, apparently the patient was uh, suffering from, from a tremendous pain and uh, her husband was trying to help. Uh, in this case, we don't know whether the hospital can do something about this, but we, we, we all know that uh, there, there has been a long queue and we have uh, some um, uh, uh, sufficient resources in our uh, medical system. Then can we do something about it uh, rather than to help them to end their lives? Mm. Uh, Professor Professor Lee or Janice, sorry. And then I was just going to go back to uh, Dr. Ao. Uh, I know. Uh, I mean, I just want to see what do you think of what Mr. Lam was saying? Because I mean, he's saying it's a controversial issue. Um, it will be difficult to discuss. I know. I know. Like uh, many many years ago, the government uh, did uh, launch a consultation to talk about uh, advanced directives. Um, it, it was was that a good start? Yes, uh, I think it it uh, it. Uh, Speaking, Hong Kong did have uh, some significant uh, discussion on the issue, and the uh, whole idea of advanced directive actually, uh, if you trace it to right back uh, to to the to the last decade, it started off with the making the distinction between euthanasia and the right of people to refuse uh, treatments, even life-sustaining treatment. So, if you uh, we accept that uh, people do have the right to refuse uh, or uh, uh, certain treatments, then advanced therapies is a very good tool to help people to uh, lay down their wishes and instructions so that when one day they become mentally incompetent or incapable of making their decision, for instance, when they're in terminal ill or in uh, coma, then that advanced therapy can be carried out and then they won't have to go through uh, treatments that are against their wishes. Uh, so, so I 
I think the whole medical community is very much for the government uh, proceeding with the legislation. And actually, the latest that I've heard, uh, the government is actually drafting a bill uh, to put up to the legislative council to uh, uh, hopefully to legislate for it. Right, because earlier you did say it was uh, difficult for physicians to make decisions for for patients, and and having uh, advanced directives, uh, it, it would it would help uh, doctors in their in their um, operation, right? Certainly, uh, in uh, from the uh, clinical point of view, uh, we use the what we call the advanced care planning process uh, for the uh, physician to communicate with the uh, patient and actually also the patient's family. Uh, to uh, discuss the pros and cons, the values and wishes, and to arrive at a consensus uh, to make a plan for the patient. Uh, this plan of care uh, is not necessarily confined to uh, with holding or withdrawing a sustained treatment. It can uh, include other facets of wishes, how the patient wants to spend their uh, latest phase in life and so on, uh, and what kind of treatment in general uh, they would uh, like to uh, have or not have. So the advanced care planning process would be something that uh, that if we can so-called popularize uh, to make it available to more people, then I think a lot of these sufferings and uh, unnecessary uh, futile treatments could be avoided. Yeah, so uh, just to make it really clear for our listeners, advanced directives, meaning advance in the future, detailed instructions on what to do when somebody gets to the point where they cannot talk, they are not conscious, uh, but otherwise cannot indicate their instructions they're planning for the future but my understanding is that in hong kong a lot of those advanced directives from the patients get overridden by the families when they get to the hospital the patient says do not resuscitate the family shows up and they're like do everything to save this person against the express wishes expressed in the advanced directive i mean is is, is that true Doc, you know professor lee have you come across this uh yeah okay it, um i think that might well be true but uh that shouldn't be the case. Uh, I believe that uh, if, if the patient is committed and adult, he or she should have the, the say. Mm. But but you're right, uh, because... Because uh, um, the family's uh, going to be around launching lawsuits sure, after exactly, the person's passed away. Exactly, <laughs> so why listen to the guy who can't talk? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, But I'm wondering, can I kind of uh, do a, you know, a slight uh, kind of reply to... Sure. So Dr. Al's point about right to die. I mean, uh, in, in the case of Hong Kong, people, in one sense, do have the right to die, meaning that uh, if someone were to commit suicide, he or she would not be prosecuted. Mm. Uh, so that's the right to die. It's a de facto right to die. No, no, it's a de jury too. De jury, as, yeah. The, the law granted right. Uh, okay. That was as uh, right before the handover. Mm. Uh, the, the question then, then is and also another thing is that the right to die in some point is to refuse treatment or to withdraw treatment. Mm. Now the question is if the law in Hong Kong and elsewhere, virtually out everywhere, uh, allow people the right to die uh, by you know to, to have the treatment withdrawn or uh, to refuse treatment, why don't we also allow people um, the right to have assisted suicide or euthanasia? If and when the three conditions I mentioned earlier mm. uh, are fulfilled, namely that someone is an adult, he or she is uh, having terminally ill, and 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 he is having uh, unbearable suffering. Sure. So, because if we were to simply allow people 
the right to refuse treatment or to withdraw treatment. And in some cases, someone mentioned the term terminal sedation. Mm. Those could be very cruel. Yeah. And, and people want to die. I mean, speaking for myself, I want to die in a dignified way, not, not ha- having to have my illness, my pain drawn out for another six months or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the concern is that there's potential for abuse. Uh, sure, grandma wanted to die, and I just happened to get the $10 million as her principal beneficiary in her will. Derek Al, what, what are your concerns on that front? Uh, let me just quickly uh, 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 reply to your earlier question uh, on family overriding advanced active in, in Hong Kong situation. Uh, that's because, personally, we're using the common law framework. Uh, to implement advanced directives. So, so the hope of the legislation when it becomes statutory, then it will be quite clear that no one can override that advanced directives that was made uh, under the law. So I, I think that is something important uh, to clarify. Uh, I, 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 I think I don't generally disagree with uh, Professor Lee that there's a very good case that can be made for uh, people having the right uh, to control the final phase of life um, under certain conditions, uh, uh, just like the right to withhold and restraint as necessary treatments. Uh, from a medical professional point of view, there, there are two things that often make us hesitate uh, to consider that. One is that when you talk about the right to die uh, through euthanasia uh, or physician assisted suicide, you are then implying that there's an obligation, uh, conversely, uh, for professionals to help them because if there's a right, then you have a duty to help them to carry it out. And I think that leads to some problems uh, where physicians may be uh, having conflicting duties towards the patients. Uh, the second um, uh, worry, I think Professor Lee is, has a lot of uh, thoughts on that too, uh, is the so-called slippery slope worries. Uh, that is, uh, when it started off with a well-regulated, uh, restricted framework, then it gets to be broader and broader and broader, as it is actually happening in, for instance, in Belgium and also uh, in Canada. So, yeah. so, so I think on both counts, uh, in principle, the duty is conflicting, and the consequence of slippery slope is a worry. Well, mm. Professor Lee, he's, uh, he's been uh, shaking his head and waving his hand. Uh, Professor Lee, what do you want to hey, say? Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, the right to die, uh, one, one can understand it in the so-called negative sense and also positive sense. If I have a negative right to die, that means no one can prohibit me from dying. It does not mean that anyone have to help me. It's like I have the right to enjoy a movie. It doesn't mean that other people have the obligation to pay me. Okay, so, mm. so we are talking about uh, anyone, maybe a physician, maybe a nurse, or maybe even a common person uh, who, who who can assist uh, someone uh, to die, and and also uh, about the personal argument. Actually, uh, it, it, as a doctor outrightly says, uh, it is a little bit complicated. But I I want to say, I mean, it comes in two versions. One is the so-called theoretical version. Uh, the theoretical version simply means if you allow A. You have got to allow B, you have got to allow C, and D, and so on. And and so, <laughs> either you allow everything or you don't allow everything. So let's not allow any kind of assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the theoretical version is actually a non-sequitur, uh, meaning a fallacious argument. For example, if we allow people above 65 some form of pension, some form of welfare, 
someone may say, how about 64? How about 63? How about 62? All the way down to 30. Exactly. 20, sure. And, and we know that, of course, the law can simply say a line, 65, 64, no. I, I think the same in this case. Mm-hmm. However, the, the argument also comes in a practical version, namely that in a certain society, uh, if you allow, you know, assisted suicide or euthanasia, there might be abuse. And I respect the argument. Uh, in the sense that we, we do have to look at in particular uh, society or community to decide. It might well be that in some society or community, this kind of abuse or practical uh, argument may, may hold, uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that we shouldn't allow it. But I do not believe that Hong Kong is such a, a society. Um, you know, we're talking about probably some some a corrupt society. I, I think Hong Kong is, is not that kind of society. It has, con- has the potential for mature debate and then to set the framework such that people can actually follow the rules and, and yeah. monitor it and yeah. minim- and, minimize abuse. There's always Yeah, abuse. and also people have been suggesting that there should be two um, physicians, mm. uh, non-attending physicians, to, to certify that this person, this patient, uh, qualified to die because yeah. his case is a genuine case of unbearable suffering, terminal illness, and so on. Yeah. Uh, We're going to be taking this to the top of the hour. Uh, Alex Lam, I'd like to thank you for joining us this morning. Alex Lam is the chairman with the Hong Kong Patients' Voices. Uh, After the break, we're going to continue the discussion with Dr. Derek Au and Professor Lee, uh, both associated with the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And uh, we're we're just starting to get deep into the philosophical weeds. I do want to let people know that if you are having a tough time, uh, the number for the Samaritans in Hong Kong who are there to help people, uh, their phone number is 28960000. They have a separate suicide prevention services hotline, which is 23820000. And you can reach out to those resources if you need it. Quick check on the weather before we go to the news at the top of the hour. It will be mainly fine and very hot. Maximum temperature around 35 degrees. Right now, the temperature is 31 degrees Celsius, 75% humidity. Thousand jobs here in America. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And we're back on Backchat. I'm Andrew Work here with Janice Wong. And we have uh, two guests who are continuing our, our, our very serious discussion today on the issue of euthanasia, assisted suicide, uh, DNRs. Uh, we still have in the studio with us uh, Professor Lee Han Lam, Emeritus Professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong's Department of Philosophy, as well as Derek Au, who is the director at the CUHK Center for Bioethics. I have an email from Vic who asks, what is the difference between DNR and assisted suicide. And I, I, I appreciate it because we're throwing around a lot of terminology today that we should probably take the time to uh, take the time to explain all these rather than assume that people know them. But DNR is a term used in a lot of, I think in a lot of other countries, not so much in Hong Kong, but you'll see it in movies and TV and it means do not resuscitate. It's a passive measure where the patient has indicated uh, that if, uh, you know, heroic life-saving measures. Like if they die and then they go to put the uh, the ECGs, yeah. the jumper the jumper cables on them, I, the, I, not to do that. It's I an think, instruction not to do yeah, that. Yeah, and I think the one in Hong Kong is actually DNRCPR, which uh, actually means do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so there's a little more detailed. And then assisted suicide is when the person is not capable of ending their life and so they require assistance uh, with that. So maybe whether it's a doctor, normally it would be a doctor uh, 
assigned to help them end their life after a very uh, detailed process, right? Um, and maybe, uh, Professor Lee, to kick things off this half, could you, could you tell us about some of those processes in other countries? Oh, um, I actually, I'm not, to be perfect honest, I'm not too uh, familiar with uh, other countries, except uh, in the case of uh, uh, the Netherlands. Mm. They do not require the, the requirement of um, uh, unbearable suffering. Mm. Uh, for a very good reason, because who knows whether this patient is having unbearable suffering, but himself or herself. Right. So, right. so it's, it's really, you know, from their point of view, this might be rather superfluous right. because we don't need it. Mm. So, so in that case, you know, it's really terminal, Ill, terminal illness and, uh, and not even the terminal Ill, illness is broadening now, as uh, Dr. O'Reilly says. Uh, so, so what, I, what I was trying to say is we should start with this rather stringent condition mm-hmm. and maybe later consider whether uh, broadening might be, um, might be justified. But of course, we are not going to say that you know, a 17-year-old yeah. who fell out of love should be allowed to die. Right. We're not talking about those cases. But, mm-hmm. uh, but, but some, some people thought that I mean, in the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. A person with uh, deep depression, yeah, uh, terrible mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people have argued that uh, those people, if they want, should be allowed to to have uh, assisted suicide. I see. But, but Doctor, I mean, Professor Lee, do, do you think? Uh, I mean, we talked about advanced directives uh, before the news. Do you think that's a good substitute in Hong Kong? Um, well, I think that it will depend on the content of the advanced directive. Then surely, um, you know, I, I know Dr. Ao know this much better than me, but uh, uh, but I would have thought that um, that advanced directive would not allow assisted suicide, would not allow euthanasia, right? If it is not allowed without advanced directive, mm-hmm. so it really depends on what's the content. The content is really only refusal to uh, to treat or withdrawal treatment, and so it's rather passive kind of. Uh, a way to die, and and of course those are uncontroversial because that's legal in virtually everywhere in the world. But it would be more um, easily ac- accepted in Hong Kong, do you think? It it is accepted, I believe. Am, am I right, Doctor Ao? Uh, that uh, uh, you know someone's right to refuse treatment and someone's right to uh, withdraw treatment. That that is the the right, right, for patients yeah, in Hong Kong. Uh, that's right. Uh, the government uh, had a very good consultation exercise before it proceeded to. Uh, prepare for the legislation, and and the view was quite uh, quite convergent uh, locally. Uh, that is, people uh, all think that uh, they should have the right uh, to refuse life-sustaining treatments. Uh, so that provided a uh, quite solid base uh, basis for the legislation. And uh, earlier you said uh, the government is preparing uh, their own paper to be uh, submitted to LegCo. Do you have any idea what the actual content will be like? I mean, what, what's the actual plan? Yes, uh, because of my other role uh, with the hospital authority, I'm still uh, advisor for the clinical ethics committee in hospital authority. Uh, so I'm actually uh, uh, right now is uh, with colleagues in HA uh, uh, having some input uh, to the uh, draft bill uh, in this final uh, drafting stage. So uh, I, I, I can't really get into the contents now because uh, it's still in the drafting stage. Uh, but it very much aligned with the government's report uh, on the uh, consultation 
paper uh, on end of life so uh, people can refer back to the consultation uh, document. Uh, it is very much uh, based on that. And, and when will this uh, paper be submitted to LegCo? Uh, I, I don't have the timetable. Uh, I personally I, I hope that as soon as possible, really, uh, because it, uh, if it can get through the LegCo, it will firm up the uh, whole uh, security uh, and safety for the uh, people who are involved and also uh, to make sure that uh, the wishes are really respected. Has, has there been a public consultation? I have to admit, I don't think I've heard that much about yeah, it. Yeah, there has yeah. been a public consultation. I, I think it was in 2001, was it in 2018? Uh, and then in oh. 2020, there's a full report. Mm. Uh, uh, it's a, a really, I think it's one of the best uh, consultation reports in Hong Kong in healthcare uh, because it, co- it collects lots of public opinions uh, and analyzes issues really well. No, uh, uh, so uh, you can refer to it. Just just knowing politics in Hong Kong and, and community and civic civic society, I'm guessing that there were a lot of religious organizations that came out and had a clear position on it. People who would be affected by it later in life and couldn't even imagine it now would not have contributed to that because they couldn't conceive of being in a position where they might want to do it or need it. And so maybe the consultation might have been a bit skewed, right? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be in the position to defend for the government, but uh, the conversation is quite wide. Uh, it cut across sectors and also religious groups. Uh, so uh, people all did have a chance to put an input. But you're right, uh, it's hard to imagine, for instance, a 30-year-old young person just graduated in his early career, certainly to make an AD or advanced directive for no later phase in life. So the idea in implementation is that uh, uh, it's, we encourage, at least from hospital authority or professional point of view, we encourage that people who make advanced actors should uh, either have had experience with uh, illnesses uh, or uh, already have some illnesses or uh, at least in uh, uh, quite uh, senior age uh, to start the process. But I don't think the law will be uh, specifically restricting the age limit, uh, but the promotion of the uh, would be targeted towards uh, patients uh, with such experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking that if I'm in that position 30 years from now and I say, wait, why is the law like this? They're saying, well, why didn't you say something during the consultation 30 years ago when they asked? I'm like, oh, I didn't think I was going to be here. Uh, Professor Lee. Yeah, um, uh, Dr. Ao, am I correct in thinking that um, uh, the bill does not allow uh, assisted suicide or euthanasia, right? Yeah, and, 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 and if that's the yeah. case, if, and that is correct, then the, the, uh, the, the issue that we're talking about today is not really covered yeah, yeah, by and those... Yeah, I uh, to respond okay, to your, yeah. your point. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, the, 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 indeed, uh, we have to make a really sort of first-level distinction between uh, uh, letting people die mm-hmm. uh, uh, by not forcing them to have uh, the same treatment. That would be what the advanced directive helped to address. Uh, but Professor Lee is perfectly right that uh, there's the other issue of should we allow people to actively help others to die, including professionals to help patients die. Uh, uh, so, so Professor Lee is correct. The, the draft bill in Hong Kong will do, a lot, will, will do quite a lot uh, for uh, avoiding uh, futile treatments and avoid imposing unwanted treatments on patients. But it will not as such address uh, or take away the issue of uh, euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. That's correct.
Okay, I have, I have an email here that will go to a question right, right to this issue uh, from Anna. She says, my UK experience with DNR, with my dad in an NHS hospital, it's the British uh, public health system, bracket, his heart stopped mid-surgery. Doctor ignored the DNR and resuscitated him as the doctor didn't want deaths on his watch. The doctor as good as admitted it when I challenged him. So the DNR was pointless. So, you know, this is one woman's experience. But the question then is, if the government is going to introduce a law that says it is, it is illegal to not respect the advanced directive, who is going to prosecute that? Because if the person is, you know, first of all, the doctor doesn't want to have deaths on his record, right? It makes his record look bad. Number two, uh, who's going to prosecute it? Because if the doctor doesn't respect the DNR, well, the, you know, probably the person that said so is dead. So they're not going to prosecute it. But you have the family who are going to lawyer up and say, well, he wasn't at the point where the DNR applied. And then next thing you know, the doctor's got a lawsuit on his hand. So, I mean, the, the doctor's incentive in every case is to ignore the DNR unless somebody else is going to prosecute it, who is that going to be? Who's going yes, to take I, that I'm, up? I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually a bit surprised to hear that case. We need a bit more details. In UK, the uh, advanced directive, uh, including uh, advanced instructions on DNA, CPR or DNR, um, is not uh, provided, uh, specified in a special legislation for advanced directive. Rather, it is incorporated in the Mental Capacity Act in 2005, uh, which uh, states that when the advanced activities is made and is very applicable, uh, the physicians must respect it. So it would be a legal offense not to respect yeah, a but, valid but who will prosecute? Uh, I mean, to, say, to so, say it's a legal offense is one thing, but who's, I mean, if, if nobody gets prosecuted, who cares? So, so I think in principle, if the case, the violation is made and uh, evidence is put forth, I think... I think the government can actually prosecute. Mm. And that is the plan uh, for the Hong of, Kong of, legislation. Yeah, of course, it could be also a civil claim as well. Right, mm. but with, with that, I mean, let's go back to Hong Kong. If uh, advanced directive is uh, introduced, I mean, would a similar situation happen? Because, I mean, like you mentioned earlier, there's no legal backing for uh, advanced uh, directive yet in Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, at this moment, no. But after legislation, there will be legal backing. And also after legislation, uh, if you look at the consultation document, it will also explicitly address the issue of doctors basing on their personal judgment of the patient's best interest uh, may want to, really want to save the patient's life, right? Uh, and in the uh, consultation document, it would specify specifically that when legislated, the AD advanced will override that decision's judgment on patients' best interest. So this will be quite explicit. Right. And the paper you expect may be uh, uh, submitted to Lodge Coast sometime this year? Well, I, I really hope it will, yeah. Uh, there are the cases of unbearable suffering, and it's quite obvious in the case of cancer, like a degenerative muscle disease. We haven't talked about dementia, where people do not want to live with dementia. They see it as a, as a dark tunnel, and uh, but their capacity to uh, make a decision about it is, is questionable, depending on the advancement of their dementia. How, how does, has anybody discussed that in terms of the, the situation in Hong Kong? Mm. Dementia is, a, is quite a, uh, a difficult uh, uh, situation because there's a, such a big spectrum. Mm. Right? There can be early dementia, there can be uh, end-stage dementia, which in end-stage is quite similar to a vegetative. It's not exactly the same, but 
it's a bit like a patient in near vegetative condition. Uh, so if you uh, consider, uh, again, using Professor Lee's framework, if you consider a, a right to control one's uh, life and sovereignty uh, idea, then you could presumably argue that I can, uh, when I have early dementia, I already cannot accept it, and then I would wish to have uh, uh, a way to end my life. I think that is something that Hong Kong has not at all addressed or discussed. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Constitution document in the fact for the advanced diagnosis did have a category uh, of uh, I think it's end stage uh, 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 diseases. Uh, and that end-stage diseases uh, or conditions will include end-stage dementia. Right. And I, I mean, I guess the other, the other part of that is the burden of care that it puts on your, presumably your spouse or your children or somebody else yes. that's close to you. I mean, and that, that doesn't yes. seem to be factored in. They're like, oh, well, it's regrettable, but go home. Yes. Don't worry. Your spouse will take care of you. Like, what if uh, I yes. want to end my life because yes. I don't want to inflict years of me yes. not yes. being Yeah, I, I think this is the part that Hong Kong is not doing well. Uh, we are really not giving enough care and support uh, to the carer. Uh, to get caregivers, uh, and, and sometimes a tragedy. But, mm. but I, I'd like to remind that the, the argument can go the other way. Uh, uh, people who are against euthanasia or assisted suicide sometimes use uh, the Chinese family culture as example that uh, a patient with a cancer conditions may well feel that he becomes the burden of the family. Mm. And our that duty to help the family not to go through with it, uh, he may uh, request assisted suicide or euthanasia, uh, mm -hmm. not because he personally wants to end the life, but for the sake of the family, he yeah. may uh, feel that he wished to do that. So, so I think uh, when we put the issues uh, into a cultural, uh, family-centered uh, context, uh, there are also other issues that we need to consider yeah. uh, for euthanasia and assisted suicide. All right. Well, maybe this will be the beginning of a broader discussion across Hong Kong. It's a big one, whether you're considering it as an individual, as a family, or as a broader Hong Kong community that we are all a part of. Uh, I'm glad that today on the show we had uh, Emeritus Professor Lee Han Lam from the Chinese University of Hong Kong's Department of Philosophy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And also Dr. Derek Al, the director of the CUHK Center for Bioethics. Thank you. Um, I'd also like to remind people once again that if you are having a tough time, you need to reach out to somebody. The Samaritans are there for you. Uh, the phone number again is 2896-0000. Uh, they also have the Suicide Prevention Services Hotline at 2382-0000. All right. Uh, we are turning to our next topic of the day here on Backchat. Uh, we're going to be talking about organic vegetables sold in Hong Kong. After a study found that more than half of the samples collected contained pesticide re residues, and if you know anything about organic vegetables, that is not on. We welcome Professor Jonathan Wong, Director of the Hong Kong Organic Resource Center. Uh, good, morning, good morning, Professor Wong. Good morning. Professor Wong, what's going on? Who's, who's putting pesticides on our organic vegetables? It's a betrayal. Uh, yes, we, we always carry out this type of survey in the last 10 years. <clears throat> and we'd like to see what's going on in the market. And we went to 165 markets, and we see 660 stores. And then we found out that among all the vertical uh, stores we found, uh, I think almost uh, around 6.2% selling organic. But among them, only around uh, 75% selling, uh, uh, they call, we call self-claimed organic. Mm 
and 25% selling certified organic. And then you ask, what's those uh, selling organic? And so that's why we collect samples from, from this store also. And then we try to see whether they contain pesticide or not, because, because organic always came. Uh, we don't have uh, pesticide. And in, uh, in the same time, those hydroponic vegetables also said that we, they don't use uh, pesticide. And then we collect 62 samples from the stores, and then we find out that 38% of that, uh, 38 samples, that means around 61% contain uh, pesticide. And then five of them exceed the uh, maximum uh, residue level or limits in Hong Kong. And that, that's not that's that's not an allowable limit to be considered organic. That's allowable limit to eat it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, allowable to have pesticides for those conventional, but for mm-hmm. organic, we don't expect a spray uh, pesticide. And so, among these samples, uh, three uh, sample coming from China uh, is certified organic. With one sample exceed the uh, uh, MRL level in Hong Kong, that means they exceed the allowable level that we are safe to eat. So, right. And then for those coming from Hong Kong, we collect my sample from local certified organic. Luckily, all of them without any pesticide. That's really mm. good. So, And then for the hydroponic, we collect seven samples. And then uh, five coming from Hong Kong, three of them contain pesticide, and one exceeds the MLL level. And two uh, hydroponic samples coming from China, all of them contain pesticide, and one exceeded the level. That gives us a signal that that means those came uh, certified, or even they sell came organic, they may contain uh, pesticide, and they may not be what we say that uh, they are really keen and they are really safe. Right, Professor Wong. I mean, are you surprised? I mean, especially with the hydroponic vegetables, because uh, they they're grown without soil, so you wouldn't really expect any chemical pesticides uh, in them. Right. Exactly. I will think like you. And that's why we collect more hydroponic this year, hydroponic sample, and then we find that it's not like that. Almost uh, in Hong Kong, 60% they contain uh, pesticide. And I would say that because it's really depending on uh, how they go their hydroponic. Some are really well-controlled, uh, self-contained environment. In this case, they don't have any pests in their system. Mm. But some of them is just like a tunnel in the new territory, like the conventional farming. In that case, they may still face the pest problem, and they may need to spray uh, pesticide in order to protect their crop so that they can sell in the market. And uh, interesting to know that all these hydroponic samples we collect, uh, most of them are kale, and these are superfood. People would like to eat it uh, as salad. But we found that two, uh, two samples, two hydroponic samples, uh, hydroponic kale samples, they exceed the MLLs. So that gives a signal that we need tighter control in this uh, hydroponic uh, agriculture. Professor Wong, back in the 90s, I worked in uh, natural products, including organic vegetables. And back then, it was really at the cusp when it was people who were fanatic about organic products, and they knew who the certifiers were. They knew how the certification worked, what the qualifications were, how the uh, inspection processes worked. But then it was right at the point when organics kind of went mainstream. And a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, I want to get organic. And a lot of other companies started slapping the organic label on without getting a proper certification. And and the general public didn't understand the certification process. Um, Is is this a wake-up call for people to look into? Not Uh, not just whether or not somebody calls themselves circuit, but if they have a certification, where is the certification from? Who's doing the inspections? Like educating themselves? 
I would say that uh, if the one with certification, I would trust more. But from the from our survey, we can easily see that from the twelve sample, the live sample from Hong Kong, they all certified, but without any pesticide. The they? one from China, thirty percent with pesticide. And then those, they sell claim organic. I think this is the dangerous one. We got around uh, 32 samples. Uh, 21 samples, they mean almost 66%. They contain pesticide. And they also have sample exceed the MRL. So I would say that when you go to the market, when you say that they put on, uh, they said they, it is organic, but without any certification, then you need to think about it, whether you should buy it. But for those certified ones, I would say that mostly you can trust. But still, I would say that there may be someone, even they certify, they may not. They may not doing properly, I would say that. But for for Western uh, consumer, I would say that trust the certified uh, organic yeah. better than those selling organic. Yes, but not all certifications are equal, though, are they? I mean, I remember when the United States Department of Agriculture got into the business of certifying organic, uh, big corporate agriculture was able to go in and really water down the standards compared to what the private organizations were doing earlier. What certifications should people look for and trust? I would say that all certification systems, from their standard, we should trust. But however, depending on the monitoring, of the certifying uh, uh, funds, that would be a big issue. But most of the most, I would say that most of the certified funds or certification systems, they are doing properly. But uh, I would say there is still some loopholes there. So that means even though certified doesn't mean they there's no uh, uh, there will be failed certifying agent. But most of the certifying agents should be fine in the world. So that's why we trust them more than those they say. Oh, I'm doing organic, and you should trust me. I don't think you can trust those cell claims that organic. Mm-hmm. All right, Professor Wong, I'm, I'm a bit um, concerned, or I'm a bit uh, interested in uh, what vegetable is actually safe to eat. I mean, earlier you mentioned that the hydroponic kale sample has uh, contains pesticides, and uh, I'm looking at your results of your study, and it's also I notice it's the kale sample from mainland that. Uh, uh, where you found uh, max uh, residue of pesticides that exceeds the uh, the uh, the amount that's allowed by the Hong Kong government by 4.1 times. So um, should we stay away from kale? I don't think so, but I would say that uh, when you look for the vegetable category, if you look for certi- uh, certified organic from local, then I think mostly I think you can trust them. Who, and who's the local certified? I would say that uh, there's still some uh, issue there, but most of them still okay. Got almost 66% without any pesticide, mm-hmm. and only one sample exit. But you understand that we only collect the sample. We can't really say that that is representative, but at least it gives you some signal. But however, for hydroponic, there's some issue there because why? The our seven, our seven sample, we got five samples. That is large proportion of them. They use pesticide, but as you say earlier, we they don't spray pesticide. Why they have? So that's why they need to tell public that whether they spray pesticide. If they spray, they just conventional vegetable. That means they nothing better than the conventional vegetable. In that case, don't they should not sell such a high price. But still, we can trust the whole system because uh, from our sample, only eight percent will exceed the MRL. That is more or less similar to those uh, from the government. I would say that uh, there's still some loophole in the whole system. We need, need to do more surveillance to deter this 
uh, these people using excessive pesticides. And and how can we even tell whether the vegetables are hydroponic type or whether they are certified organic? Because some of these shops they sell um, both organic, hydroponic, and uh, conventional uh, vegetables. I would say that uh, when they are selling uh, certified, they pay the money to certify for the certifying agent. I would say that they usually will have certificate and also a label. So that means once they have a label and certificate, you charge them. But so hydroponic, currently there's no uh, what we call certifying system. So there may be some kind of system need to be built up so that they go and certify this hydroponic farm, making sure they are not applying pesticide. Then in the future, they got a label, then we can trust them. But anyway, uh, in Hong Kong, <clears throat> all the vegetables are being uh, surveilled by the uh, food and safety food safety center. In that case, I would say that they should set up the surveillance system in order to protect the consumer. Right. I mean, so pe- people should know their certifications, learn what the certification means, and look for it. Because- yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much to uh, Professor Jonathan Wong, who is the director of Hong Kong Organic Resource Center, who's uh, given us the lowdown on organic vegetables in Hong Kong. People, you've got to be aware of your certifications and look for them. All right, that's a wrap for Back Chat this week. I'd like to thank all our listeners, those who called and sent in emails. Extra love to you. A huge thank you to my co-host Janice Wong today. Good job, heavy topic uh, for today. I'd like to thank our producer, Yuki Tsong, for lining up a great panel of guests and, and bringing them to the uh, to the show. And uh, the main man, James, on the sound. Thank you very much, everybody. Make sure you tune in Monday for more with Janice and Mike Rouse and more of our summer guests because it is summer it is hot the uh, temp- the weather today mainly fine and very hot max temperature of 35 degrees in the urban areas a couple of degrees higher in the new territories people take care of yourself persistently hot isolated showers uh, and very hot over the weekend with some isolated showers as well temperature is now 31 degrees celsius it is 68 degrees or uh, 68% humidity a breastfeeding friendly work culture benefits both breastfeeding staff and their employers by boosting morale and productivity employers can give their support simply by providing mothers with suitable breaks and private space for breast-